welcome to the latest episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. If you're a leader who is serious about building your leadership skills and transforming your organizational culture, you are in the right place. I am Ken Cameron. And I'm Russell Stratton. Sometimes difficult conversations suck, but you need to have them. So in every episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast, we ask leaders about the most difficult conversation that they've had with their employees, co-workers, suppliers, customers, or even their boss. We ask them how the F they managed to get through those challenging moments so you can learn from their successes and from their missteps, all so that you can become a better leader. In this episode, we need to effing talk to Anne-Marie Pham, the CEO at the Canadian Centre for Diversity and inclusion, which is celebrating its 10-year anniversary this year. Anne-Marie has worked with diverse communities and workplaces for over 25 years as a diversity and inclusion lead for Spectra Energy and the City of Calgary. And that's where I met Anne-Marie. I had the great pleasure of interacting with her while I was working in the City of Calgary, which I think was probably about a decade ago. And it was, uh, I was immediately taken by Anne-Marie's energy and by the ease with which she enters into what can become difficult or fraught conversations. And since then, Anne-Marie has moved on to become working with the Center for Diversity and Inclusion, and now more recently becoming its CEO. She's also been a trainer and facilitator for Human Resources and Skills Development Canada. And in 2013, she received the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Award for her community service. And she's a member of the Board of Directors for the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. And as of October 2020, she's a member of the City of Calgary's Anti-Racism Action Committee. Welcome, Anne-Marie, to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ken and Russell, for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Excellent. So we're going to start you off with the same question we ask all of our guests. What do you do and why should anyone keep effing listening to you over the next 30, 40 minutes? (laughs) Well, I hope that people want to listen to me. I'm not sure about that. Uh, But certainly, I love everything that has to do with diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility. And the reason for that is because it is my life. It has been part of my story from the time that I was born. I have been in Canada for 38 years, but I was born in Vietnam. And when I was three, a family moved to France. And when I was 15, a family moved to Canada. So English is my third language. Canada is my third country on my third continent. (laughs) And I think that my story is very similar or is a variation of many, many, many other stories of people who live and make a life and make a living in Canada. So for me, it's about bringing this perspective, which seems unique, but has many connections and alignment to the stories of many Canadians. And so For the purpose of this podcast, my lens is very much about how can Anne-Marie bring, you know, her experience, her lived and living experience to the landscape of how to build a more inclusive Canada for all. Uh, Thank you very much for giving us that background and also for giving us kind of that context of why it's uh, 
passionate for you and what your connection is. And, and I think it's also really important, as you indicated, it's a story that's shared by an awful lot of Canadians. And the demographic of Canada has been changing so much. The city in which we all three of us reside, Calgary, has this reputation of being this very white city. But the new demographics are that is is it a quarter, is it a third of the population of Calgary comes from a country other than Canada. They were born outside of Canada. Um, maybe you'll know that fact better than me. Mm-hmm. And certainly the trends are pointing to even more and more racial and ethnic diversities over the years. The other thing, too, I would say is that You know, the top three countries uh, of immigration to Canada all come from Asia, right? And for the past five years or so, it's been Canada, uh, sorry, it has been India, China, and the Philippines. And uh, last year in 2022, we also had Afghanistan uh, because of the number of refugees there. And so not only are we getting more diverse in terms of ethnicity and race, uh, but the trend is moving towards even more you know, immigration that is absolutely required to maintain the economy and the standard of living that we have in Canada. Uh, we've got an aging population, a growing dependency rate. And so in order for us to be able to continue to create, you know, the life that we want in Canada, the social and economic infrastructure, we rely very heavily on immigration. And that's why we need to be able to not only, you know, support and acknowledge the diversity that we have when it comes to immigration um, and racial and diversity, but also how to leverage that, you know, not to just accommodate or accept it, but really leverage it and take it to the next level as a catalyst for growth and change in our society. Absolutely. I was really lucky a couple of years ago to work with the Center for Newcomers and WordFest here in Calgary to present um, Douglas Saunders when he had just published his book called Maximum Canada. And I, as part of that, I had the great privilege of, you know, picking him at the airport and chauffeuring him around to the CBC interviews and so on. And I got a chance to chat with him because I've been a big fan of his writing. He writes uh, these wonderful articles in the Globe and Mail for, I think it's probably two decades now, as well as well as this wonderful book. And in that book, he argues that Canada needs to really maximize its uh, immigration policies by actually like tripling the amount of immigrants that we bring in if we really are to become the economic powerhouse that we say we want to become. Uh, and in addition to simply simply maintaining the uh, programs that you've just described. So it's it's a conversation that's taking place in all sorts of areas in the in the in the media. So one of the things I'd, I'd be interested in your your thoughts on, Emery, because you said you were big, obviously an advocate for um, inclusion um, and going beyond just sort of accommodating different, you know, different people from different parts of the world, um, different cultures, different values, um, and understanding that Canada needs immigration to be able to maintain and increase its standard of living, and as you were saying, Ken, to you know, to be a, continue to be an, an economic ha- powerhouse. You named four countries there that had the sort of you know, largest number of immigrants into Canada. And if I remember, if I heard correctly, um, we had uh, China, uh, the Philippines, India, and Afghanistan. Now, each of those countries has its own culture, um, in some case different religions, and its own sort of feel to it. 
What's the challenge of taking, you know, large numbers of immigrants from different cultures and different countries and bringing them together in a city like Calgary with the people that we already have here from different countries and different cultures. Um, how do you see that? What's the challenge and how, what's the sort of solution to it, really, in terms of making that more of a cohesive, inclusive group? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I won't talk a lot about some of the, you know, infrastructure challenges in terms of, you know, housing, for example, um, or access to social services. But what I'll talk about is more through an employment and workplace focus, which is what we do at the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion. And essentially what we're seeing is that there is a war for talent. You know, even though sometimes our economy goes up and down, if you talk to many employers, they're all looking for very talented candidates to fill the gaps that they have in the workplace. But what we've seen as well through the data is that there is still systemic unemployment and underemployment of our talent, the talent that comes to Canada including from those four countries, but of course, many more countries, um, as well as indigenous, you know, talent that we have and other dimensions of diversity in Canada. But speaking about the new immigrants, you know, many of them come through the economic class or the business class, and some of them come through the refugee stream uh, based on human and compassionate grounds. And so you've got some variety in terms of, you know, what individuals bring to Canada. And I'm very proud of Canada for being a country, you know, that accepts um, and supports refugees as well. But what we're seeing are a lot of gaps in terms of employers' real understanding of the benefits of diverse talent in the workplace. And the problem with that is tied to a lack of intercultural intelligence, humility, and competence. There is this thing going on, and it's sort of the default, it's the easiest thing for individuals to do, is to compare one skill set against um, others, right? So everything is relative to me or the way that we've been doing it in Canada, the way that we build a workplace culture, the way that we make decisions, the way that we deal with conflict, our styles of communications, etc. So when you've got individuals from different countries who have a different way of communicating, who maybe are manifesting the same values, like say education, in a different way, who solve problems using perhaps more collectivist or indirect forms of communications other, over other forms of communications in the Canadian workplace. If people do not have the ability to see the cultural differences, how they play out in the workplace, and navigate those differences and adapt their communication styles and their approaches, to meet people where they're at, what you're going to end up seeing is a lot of misunderstanding in the workplace, a lot of confusion, a lack of clarity, uh, and unfortunately, the reinforcement of myths and stereotypes that exist out there towards particular ethnocultural groups. 
So we need to unpack, you know, these concepts of cultural humility and cultural intelligence to get us to a point where people understand what they mean and then start building the skills to address, you know, some of those gaps in the workplace. I'm curious, Anne-Marie, you talk about um, how the employer needs to come and meet the employee where they're at. And to play devil's advocate, let me actually, let me start with the story first. uh, Before I I propose the devil's advocate idea, I was at a arts conference about a decade ago in Europe, and there was some presenters from the Netherlands who were talking about an art project they were doing in which they were taking religious icons from different cultures that had all immigrated to the Netherlands and were, to some extent, um, uh, uh, Dutchifying them and making them, uh, taking those taking those icons and making them fit in with, in an artistic sense, within the, uh, the Dutch culture. And I, at the end of the presentation during the Q&A portion, I raised my hands and I asked how they were navigating the train of, of that this might be in some way insulting to take uh, images like um, Ganesh or Mohammed and to um, place them into this kind of context. And their response from the stage shocked me. They responded by saying, well, quite simply, the immigrants need to adapt to Dutch culture. They need to meet, essentially they were saying, they need to meet us. And I asked the question a couple of different ways because I thought I was misunderstanding them, but it turns out that no, they were really feeling that that taking somebody else's culture and then adapting it and feeding it back to them was a useful way to encourage integration into Dutch culture. So to bring this around to a business context, I would imagine that there are uh, many individuals who either consciously or subconsciously feel that why should I come and meet you, the employee where you're at, it's my office, it's my workplace, you should come, it's my industry, you should come and meet us here and learn the way that we do things in this industry and in this office and in this organizational culture. Mm -hmm. This is a good point and it's a very valid point to raise because this is a conversation of practically every workplace. How much does an employer adapt? How much does an employee adapt? And where is the ideal point of connection, right? And if you look at Canada versus the U.S., for example, you know, if you listen to the stories of workplace inclusion, you can see that in Canada, we have this idea, you know, that we are a mosaic as opposed to the U.S. being a melting pot. And with the melting pot, the assumption is that one must try to assimilate and melt into this pot of U.S. culture, norms, and values. But the mosaic image is like, you know, a salad with all kinds of ingredients, the tomato, the lettuce, the cucumber. And you kind of sort of be who you are and then be part of this salad, mix it up, and that forms Canada. The mosaic of beautiful tiles of different colors. So idealistically, that's what people are thinking about when they think about multiculturalism in Canada. And they may assume, you know, that our mosaic value is better than the U.S. melting pot. And on the surface, that makes sense. But the reality is that these conversations are still happening in today's workplace. And in fact, sometimes it feels even 
more polarized today than it were maybe a year or two ago, right? So my point uh, when we're doing this work in Canadian workplaces is that there needs to be mutual adaptation. That, you know, that's why there's immigrant serving agencies that are providing all of this support and training and employment career preparation for newcomers, for skilled immigrants to prepare themselves to write a resume the way that Canadian employers expect it to be. And to understand, you know, during an interview, when people say, please tell me about yourself, it's not about telling necessarily about your favorite hobbies and your family situation and your income level, (laughs) but it's telling about yourself, who you are in relation to the job that you're applying for, right? So there are certainly some things that newcomers need to be prepared for. But I think because of the position of power and privilege uh, that employers have, and because of the fact that if employers do their homework, they will see that there is a very strong business imperative, people imperative, and social imperative for recruiting diverse talent. Employers, I think, have an added responsibility to create a recruitment process and a work environment that celebrates diversity, that sees diversity as an asset and not a liability or an obstacle. And by really reviewing the way that they do, you know, candidate outreach, that they interview people, um, hopefully that they've done some training around unconscious bias, um, that they also create or review policies and practices in their workplace through that diversity, equity, and inclusion lens. And all of the ways in which they, whether they are managing a team or whether they are in charge of a policy or just a team member of a project that they're rolling out, that individuals are really taking that extra step to get to know the other person and really asking them, what can we do you know, to make a team environment, this project, this workplace more inclusive, not just for the majority of people, but for all people. So there is a sense of mutual adaptation, but I would like for the employers to really take the lead and to showcase that commitment because when they truly showcase that commitment, you know, the talent out there is going to look at it and they're going to go, wow, this is the kind of workplace that I want to work at. Like I want to apply there. Right. So it really creates that environment of, yeah, let's try to be an employee of choice for diverse candidate and diverse talent. And what role does the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion play in helping the employer prepare their workplace to be that kind of aspirational workplace that you've described? Yeah, absolutely. Well, at CCDI, you know, we look at all dimensions of diversity. So we pan diversity and we certainly have lots of webinars, community of practice events and conferences, as well as toolkits, resource guides, research um, that is available on our website on all dimensions of diversity. But for this one in particular, you know, we um, are doing, for example, training specifically on cultural competence, right? 
um, really looking at understanding, you know, how you can be more ethno-relative as opposed to ethnocentric in the way that you look at your organization, that you review applicants, that you create, um, you know, thoughtful onboarding that works for people. Um, and how to develop, you know, cultural humility and that cultural intelligence, understanding about different cultures and, and building skills to navigate between cultures. So that's what I would say uh, for this particular part of it. And, you know, at CCDI, we have over 730 employer partners from coast to coast in all sectors and all industries. When we work with them, we also realize that each workplace has its unique needs and challenges and opportunities. And so it's really important to go in there, do a bit of a needs assessment and really try to understand, you know, okay, what are we going to be focusing on today or over the next few months to support your organization more effectively? We'll be moving into our break shortly, Anne-Marie, but there's something I wanted to just to, to come back to you. Um, this may not be when this uh, podcast is released, but certainly as it's being recorded, we are um, in Pride Month. And i like your thoughts on what advice would you give to employers where you have, should we say, a differing of values or a differing approach to values? I, I, I hesitate to use the word clash of values, because mm-hmm. it, and, and also this is not just real, um referencing people who are new to Canada. It can also um, reference existing Canadians. So if we take that, the pride example, it's something that's fairly established in Canada. A lot of companies do a little work around allyship and promotional um, activities, uh, workshops, et cetera, around Pride Month. Um, But we're seeing a little bit of a pushback, particularly this year, against some of the messaging and some, uh, not everybody necessarily has the same viewpoint or agrees with the approach that's maybe mainstream. So how would you suggest that employers tackle that issue uh, where you might have something that you're looking to you know, promote, but you have a workforce where not everybody is perhaps on the same page? Mm-hmm. This is a very good question, Russell, and it's one that uh, we are faced with on a regular basis. When it comes to Pride Month, we are certainly, um, you know, seeing organizations celebrating Pride Month and really organizing events around that. But we're also seeing individuals within those organizations that are pushing back and don't necessarily agree to the values of the inclusion of the 2S LGBTQI plus community. The challenge we find is because the values that individuals have, sometimes they want to push that into the values of the organization. But an organization is its own entity with its own policies, code of conduct, um, you know, Uh, practices, and its own culture. The thing that one must remember all the time is that an organization, even though it has its own set of rules, policies, and procedures, is essentially a microcosm of the larger society. So in your workplace, if you've got diversity of religion, of lived experiences, 
of cultures, of genders. What's going to happen there? You're going to have a diversity of ideas, values, and practices. You can't get away from it. So first of all, people just have to acknowledge that that is what you're dealing with. Okay, that the foundation of your workplace is a very diverse workplace. The next level is then to find ways to create an environment in your workplace where you can try to depolarize conversations. And what we mean by that is building techniques or skills in your workforce and your employees to resort to uh, you know, uh, healthy dialogue as opposed to polarizing debates of we versus them, I am right, you are wrong. As soon as we get into those debates and that kind of mindset and mentality, people become very defensive and it will be very difficult for people to engage in meaningful conversations. And so recently, we've rolled out a community of practice events uh, called Depolarizing the Workplace Using Nonviolent Communication Techniques. And building the skill sets, coaching individuals to engage in conversations, to learn about somebody else, to ask them how they feel about a situation, to really listen uh, through an empathic lens, and to be able to express themselves in a way that doesn't come across necessarily as confrontational, but as educational towards a common solution. Those are techniques that really allow workplaces to talk to each other, right? And then to say, okay, this is my experience. This is your experience. Maybe we don't agree on it, but the reality is that as a workplace, because we've got so much diversity, we need to be able to ensure that our workplace is going to be safe for everyone. No matter who you are, no matter what your background is, you know, respect in the workplace should apply to everyone. And so microaggressions based on one sexual orientation is unacceptable, right? Making fun of someone because of their accent or what they look like is unacceptable. And that's it. You know, that's your code of conduct. You will have disagreement at the personal level based on your values. But as an organization, your code of conduct will guide the things that are not acceptable and the things that are acceptable. Okay, that's great. Thank you, Anne-Marie. I think that's really uh, useful advice for, for listeners who um, may be sort of struggling with that, with their workplace. Um, I, I'd like it if perhaps we will share in our show notes maybe just uh, the link to, the, to that resource, if that's okay, or where yep. they can find information because I think that you know, depolarizing is key. I've certainly worked in a workplace, and that's why I raised that example where in the team that I managed, I had two people who had very different views. One um, who themselves was um, gay and a second person who came from a country where homosexuality was illegal and they believed that it was illegal. So they say, well, which one trumps? Which one Which one wins? Because yeah. this, is my, this is my religious belief. It's backed by my culture. And this is somebody saying, well, this is my sexual orientation. It's backed by law. 
which one which one wins in the argument. And, and I'm glad to think that I didn't do too bad of a job of dealing with it because it was like it's not about a win or lose. This isn't about one person wins, one person loses. That's right. It would be a place of let's you know, and then be prepared to listen to each other as to why somebody feels that way. And then what I did was in some way back on to, well, this is what our, you can believe what you want, but when you come to work, these are the things that you can and can't do. Um, and that's as far as I got it. I don't think it was perfect and not as eloquently put as you did, um, but it was interesting to, to, to see how you um, you phrased that. Russell. Yeah, yeah, I agree with the, the way that you answered that particular situation. Um, I have had... Um, experiences in different organizations where, you know, somebody from, let's say, a country would come up to me and said, well, you know, I'm willing to join your program for my community, but if you're going to bring that leader from that other tribe, I am not willing to join your group. So you either pick us or them. And I said, well, in our organization, it is open to all groups, all people of all tribes within your country. Uh, because every group has their own needs for social cohesion and community development. So it is not about us picking one over the other. This is what our organization believes in, and that was part of our policy. So we will run into differences. There's no doubt about it. And home politics sometimes play a role into how people are experiencing, um, you know, the, the situation in Canada, but we have to be clear as well about we acknowledge and respect the points of view, but this is how we do it in this organization. Thank you, Anne-Marie. There's so much more to delve into this. I want to be, I want to ask so each of you so many questions about your own individual experiences and how this showed up. I'm, I, I'm, I'm curious how it shows up in all sorts of different workplaces. Um, and we also are about to go to our commercial break. So we're going to press pause here. I'm going to take us away to our commercial break. And when we come back from our break, we're going to get right into the most difficult workplace conversation that you've had, Anne-Marie. Listener, we'll be right back. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. One of our clients wants to do the pitch for us. That client is Dean Jessen, who's operations manager at Volker Seven Highways. Dean was a guest on our podcast in episode number 36. And at the end of his interview, he surprised us by telling our listeners just what he thought of our work. Russ and Ken, I appreciate the work your team does with managing difficult workplace conversations. Volker Stevin has had the pleasure of going through that a few times now. And I know some other parts of our companies are also engaging that with yourselves and Blue Gem. And just for the audience's information, we know in a work environment, it goes without saying that there's different views and perspectives out there. And agreements, disagreements, conflicts, etc., are going to take place. And, and what we've really benefited from, from the work your team does, is that you address these conflicts or disagreements. You work with the company, you address their specific conflicts and disagreements, and you make it a real-life setting by bringing actors and mediating and keeping that context going and the discussions going. So... It prepares our leaders in Volker 7 and others in the leadership role to be ready for these conversations when they do take place. So really appreciate the work you gentlemen do as well in your team. We had no idea that Dean was going to say that, but we're really glad that he did. For years, Ken and I have been leading these workshops on how to navigate difficult workplace conversations. Because we use live actors to play your difficult employee, customer, supplier, or boss, 
it's as close to the real thing as you can get without having the real problematic individuals in the office with you. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot psychologically safer. If you'd like to find out more about our live workshops or our online courses, then head on over to INeedToEffingTalkToYou.com. And now, back to the episode. Welcome back to the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. Today, we are speaking with Anne-Marie Pham. So let's take a look at the most difficult workplace conversation you've had to conduct, Anne-Marie. It could be with an employee, coworker, customer, or even your boss. Talk us through what happened. What happened before the conversation to set it up for us? What happened during the conversation? What the consequences of the conversation were? Walk us through it. Absolutely. I thought about this one example, which I think um, would be relevant for today's workplace. This happened to me a number of years ago, and I had a group of young people. They were between the ages of, I'd say, 15 to maybe 22 years old, and they were newcomers to Canada, and they had never had a job in Canada yet. And so this particular program was, over the course of a year, to prepare them for their first job in Canada. And these young people were from all over the world. But there's one story that I remember vividly, and it was of a young lady. um, I think she was probably in grade 12, who was from Korea. And of course, she was an excellent student. She was very lovely. And she was able to land this great summer job in an office doing a little bit like admin accounting work. So things were going well. And then I did a check-in with her supervisor. And the supervisor said to me, well, you know, I'm not sure that she's well-suited for the role. Then I said, what do you mean by that? Well, she seems a little bit quiet. She's not very engaged. I'm not sure if she's motivated. And I don't see much, you know, her raising her hands or asking questions. So I said, okay, but how is she performing? And he's like, well, you know, she's doing the work, but I don't think her heart is in it. So I'm like, okay, thank you. Let me talk to the student and see where she's at. Then I called the student and I just asked her with a neutral tone, How's your work going so far? What's the experience like for you so far? And she's like, oh, Emery, it's been wonderful. I've had a really good experience so far. I am learning a lot on the job. Um, You know, I'm doing all of the assignments that are assigned to me on time, and I'm very satisfied. And I said, were there any issues that you have identified? She said, no, nothing at all. Everything's going well. So, of course, then I see there's a disconnect between what she's assessing and what the supervisor is assessing. Then I went back to the supervisor and I told him, listen, there's no issues at her end. She seems to be doing quite well. She seems to be enjoying her work experience. And he was surprised. He didn't quite understand what was going on. So then I digged a little bit. And, you know, I am an Asian woman as well. I came to Canada when I was 15. I was quite young. And I experienced some things when I came to Canada. And I was reflecting on that. I experienced, you know, the sense of 
people don't really know who I am. When they looked at me, there were some stereotypes that they had about me. They made some assumptions about me, like she's quiet, she doesn't talk much, maybe she's a hard worker, she's that you know perfect model minority, which is by the way a myth <laughs> that you know Asians are the perfect model minority uh, because look at them, you know they work hard, they don't complain, and they succeed. Right? They've made it. The reality is that that's not always the case. Obviously, you know, we are not a monolith. Asian people come with all kinds of backgrounds and have different levels of achievement, just like any other group. I also thought about my background coming from a collectivist society, a deference to authority, a deference to people who are older than us, and a deference to men as well. And I thought about her. She's a young woman. Her boss is an older white man. And it's her boss, right? So then, of course, she's not going to ask questions. Of course, she's not going to do eye contact because that could come across as a little bit abrasive. Of course, she's not going to talk about her achievement in front of him because that's going to come across as boasting, which is not a positive trait in a lot of Asian cultures. So you see here how there was a difference in cultures and the lack of understanding of each other's cultures created misunderstanding. Without my intervention, after I spoke with the, the supervisor and I explained to him you know, the, the differences in culture, I believe that without my intervention, perhaps this student would have maybe not have an opportunity to um, excel in her job, um, that the supervisor maybe would have let her go earlier or perhaps not given her a good reference. And I also spoke and provided coaching to the student to also help her to understand the Canadian workplace a little bit better and how people actually are encouraged to ask questions, even though it may come across as initially inappropriate and rude to her, it was actually a good thing to do. So she was very intelligent, but the way that she showcased or communicated or conveyed her intelligence was not what the Canadian employer was looking for. And this is where I'm thinking, you know, both sides need to absolutely play a role in building that cross-cultural understanding and that cultural intelligence. That's a great example, Emery, and, and it, it sort of reminds me of, of my own experience to a degree. So one of the roles that I have is I do teach at the uh, School of Business here at Bow Valley, and, and the vast majority of students um, are international students, typically from three main areas. I would say with Philippines and India being the main two, um, and then I would say there are a number of, of what I would generally called South American students. They come from Brazil and Venezuela and Argentina, Colombia. But um, then one of the things that we discuss on the class is often around you know, being in the workplace because one of the roles I have is also to mo to um, you know, oversee work experience and the expectations. And it was exactly the point you were saying there about, you know, should I, you know, a Canadian employer might expect you to speak up, to ask questions, to challenge your boss if you had a better idea. Um, whereas perhaps people's experience before is you don't you don't speak up and tell your boss what you think. That's considered to be rude. 
Um, you you would wait to be asked rather than ask, you know. So there were some differences. But the, the the piece that always got to me was how you refer to somebody in the workplace. Well, a lot of students would always say, "You'd always call me sir," and I said, "You don't have to call me sir. You can call me Russ or Russell." And they said, "But we used to call uh, calling an instructor sir." So we came to an, an agreement about four years ago with a group of, of Filipino students, and we gave a compromise. And I said they could call me Russell, but they wanted to call me sir. So instead. They call me Sir Russell. And that seems to be as it's come forward because every class I've had since then, they must have got around because every group of Filipino students that I have always referred to me as Sir Russell. And I asked somebody, they said, oh, we had somebody who was in your previous class, and that's what they said. So I said, that I will, I will compromise here. You can call me Sir Russell. I'm not actually Sir Russell, but you can do that. Um, but I, I, I sort of was slightly humorous, but it was a way of sort of, you know, I feel comfortable with that. You feel comfortable with that. It's not hurting anybody. So, you know, let, let, let's find a way to, to, to work forward. So it's, uh, that reminded me of your, your story there. You know, I wanted to say, you know, besides the fact that it sounds like you're a wonderful knight in shining armor, <laughs> I would say that is a great compromise that you made. And, you know, for me, I also had a Filipino employee and he for weeks called me boss. And I said to him, please do not call me boss. So I had the exact same experience you did, Russell, except it was boss as opposed to sir. Um, and then it took me a moment, but I learned to adapt. And so I challenged myself and took a moment to like take a deep breath and accept the fact that, you know, if he wants to call me boss once in a while, it's okay. And I also coached him and I said, well, in Canada, you know, you can call me boss here, but really like if you go to any other workplace, you know, some bosses may not be as adaptable. So try to practice calling me Anne-Marie. And it took him a little while to be comfortable with it. But he did eventually. And so we had a mix of Emery and boss or boss Emery or Emery the boss. <laughs> and it was fun throughout the whole experience that we had together. It became a bit of a joke on a daily basis. Your, your story about the, uh, the employer looking for certain cues from the employees and either they weren't there or he was misreading the cues that he was being given put me in the mind of a recent blog post from one of my favorite authors, Seth Godin, that was released back on June 5th. And I'll put that in the show notes. But he talks about something called proxies and false proxies. Mm -hmm. And his notion is that, you know, you, you're when you go to a supermarket, you, you can't actually open the bottle of ketchup and, and taste the bottle of ketchup. So you have to look for other proxies like the label or, you know, what the ingredients are. And sometimes it, sometimes they can be false proxies in the sense that it can be a really well-designed label that looks like it comes from a, in a high-end charcuterie shop, but really inside the bottle is really just Heinz ketchup. And when we transpose this to a business context and we look into the workplace, there can be a whole number of false proxies. And in that blog post, he cites height, race, gender, attractiveness, um, a famous college you went to that matches my alumni, you know, all these false proxies that people might look to when they're hiring. But one of the other proxies that he mentions just in passing is charisma in meetings. I think that relates to kind of what you're talking about a little bit here is that that employer was looking for some sort of proxy, to use the language here, that would give him a cue that the employee was engaged in her work, was enthusiastic about her work, and was doing her work well. 
And he wasn't reading the proxies that were actually being given to him, which was respect, deference, um, uh, you, you know, a, a quietness that you cited, but also the most obvious proxy, actually looking at the work. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, well, which I guess really isn't a proxy. That's looking at actual data, right? Actually looking at wh- the work that she was actually doing. So it, it, it's an interesting uh, notion that we, we, we have a bias that we're looking for certain things. And when they're not there, um, then we make an assumption. And using his language of calling those biases that we look for as proxies that are standing in for what we should actually be looking for kind of opened up something for me in terms of my own perceptual bias and allowed me mm-hmm. to look at my biases in a new way. Yeah, that's a great example as well. And I love, you know, when people use new terms to explain things that other people are using words such as, you know, unconscious biases um, and different ways of thinking and doing. I think all of us do have these proxies and false proxies in our life because of our own unique socialization. And if over the course of your life, you haven't had a chance to truly be immersed in Korean culture or to be immersed even within the Korean community in Calgary, for example, then how much does one actually know about, you know, how the values and the norms of Korean cultures are manifested every day in the workplace. And this is why, you know, as part of cultural competence, one of the things that people want to do is learn about other cultures and learn about, you know, sort of the cultural um, archetypes, not stereotypes, but archetypes, which are essentially cultural generalizations that one can make about that culture with the understanding that they will always be outliers. It's like a bell curve. You've got maybe three quarters of the population that is, you know, particularly in acting in a way when it comes to, say, indirect or direct communications. But even within that culture, you're going to see some differences, you know, at the tail ends of that bell curve. So it's going to be the same thing. We need to understand these cultural archetypes um, when we work with or connect with people of, of various cultures and not jump straight into these false proxies. One of the ways in which we can do that, if I can just be practical for a moment, is through a method called the DIN model. And DIN stands for describe, interpret, and then navigate. But unfortunately, many of us who unconsciously or not use false proxies, interpret first, and then describe, and then navigate. So when the supervisor was saying, I'm not sure if she's well-suited for the job or I'm not sure if she's motivated. He jumps straight into interpretation and skip the description part, right? So when you describe, it's looking at the report, being factual about it, but all the descriptions like she did not ask questions at the meeting or she did not have eye contact. Those are factual descriptions. Then one must look at those descriptions and get to learn about the culture a little bit to help to interpret what those descriptions actually mean. And if the supervisor would have done the work about learning about the Korean culture, he would have understood more why she acted a particular way. And once they understand that eye contact with a direct male supervisor 
may not be always appropriate in the workplace, then this supervisor could say, okay, then how do I navigate this situation more effectively? Taking in, into account both cultural similarities and differences. That's the DIN model. And it's much more efficient and accurate uh, to describe first, then interpret, and then navigate. And I suppose uh, we're lucky that, or that student is lucky that she didn't have an employer who left right to navigate. Because I can see situations where people are like, not fitting in, she's out. And that's like trying oh, to yeah. navigate the problem or solve the problem first without doing any of those first two steps. Which, uh, and, and I also appreciate that you separated the term archetype from stereotype. So that we understand the archetype versus the stereotype. And we were, as soon as you were talking about Korea, I went to my own experience with Korea. And um, and I was thinking like, oh, yeah, I love Koreans. But in fact, when I really think about it in terms of the context you've just described, I'm like, no, actually, I went to Korea for one week and I went to an arts conference and I hung out with the punk rock band. So <laughs> what I like are, you know, outcast artists, <laughs> Koreans who are outcast artists, which are a very different subset of Korean culture than your average normal. And also <laughs> South Koreans versus North Koreans, right? So it's, and Seoul versus rural Korea. So there's all sorts of different subcategories that I was experiencing there. And I think it behooves all of us to recognize the, the diversity within diversity. Right. And then there's K-drama Korea, and then there's the pop culture and the pop music, right? Like there's so many aspects of it. And, and those tend to have, you know, taken over, you know, our feeds as opposed to perhaps the real and true lives of Koreans. And so again, within the context of what information are we actually getting through from social media? Is it 100% accurate? And is it accurate all the time or not? Right? So, and if the answer is no, it's a stereotype. If the answer is yes all the time, then it's a fact. And we need to separate the facts from the stereotypes. Well, that, that's very helpful for that, Anne-Marie. I think it'll be helpful for our listeners. I think also for um, for your organisation, if you ever need uh, somebody to do a module on working with Korean punk rockers, um, then Ken might be somebody <laughs> who you could call upon at that particular point. Um, so just before we come to a close, we like to close with uh, the same question that we ask all of our guests. Um, what are you working on at the moment that you feel that people should effing care about? What are you doing at the moment? You know, in the moment, what we're trying to do is really help employers to keep up the momentum. Because if I look back three years ago on May 25th, 2020, some of you may remember that that is the day when George Floyd was murdered. And shortly after that, in Canada, we confirmed more and more Indigenous graves being discovered all across Canada. And during the COVID pandemic, we have an exponential rise of anti-Asian hate and racism. These are just three examples. But over the three years, we've seen, you know, a lot of companies reaching out to us and saying, okay, I think diversity and inclusion is an important thing to do. And we're hearing from our, from our employees, we're hearing from our clients, we're hearing from our potential customers that they expect us to do something about it. And so for a little while there, we had a surge of demand 
to explore diversity and inclusion in the workplace and people committing to the work. But unfortunately, I think we're starting to see some of that dwindling down. So how do you keep the conversation going? How do you keep the momentum? How do you make diversity, equity, and inclusion work more sustainable in your organizations in the midst of you know, them having to deal with the economy, dealing with inflation, dealing with back-to-work hybrid workplaces, and other risk factors that you know, a lot of workplaces, rightly so, have to face. Does then diversity, equity, and inclusion work become less important? when your workplace is the same and when your workplace actually is going to probably need to have more diversity in order to not only survive, but thrive into the future, that your workplace have to create programs, products, and services that will be more receptive and acceptable to a more diverse marketplace. Where is your organization at and how prepared is it to continue this conversation. That's what we're dealing with. Thank you, Anne-Marie. I think that's a lovely place for us to end this article. You know, you mentioned earlier the just the difference between melting pot and multicultural mosaic. And that prompted me to talk about that that conference I was at in in Europe. And that reminds me, too, that, you know, so many European countries are struggling with multiculturalism at the moment. And so many are referring to the failed experiment of multiculturalism. And I don't see it as a failed experiment. And I think that comes from our Canadian example, that it really multiculturalism in that sense of mosaic is truly working in Canada in so many ways. It's not easy. And you pointed out to us that uh, the ways in which it's it's not easy, but you've also pointed out to us um, many of the resources that organizations like CCDI, the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion, and others make available. So I'm really glad you were able to share some of that on the podcast here. We're going to put into the show notes some of the links that you mentioned, um, some of the models that you mentioned, and also a link to the CCDI website for our listeners. Thanks very much for being a part of the podcast. Thank you very much, Russell. Thank you very much, Ken. It was an absolute pleasure for me to spend some time with you and to talk about this very topic, precious and passionate topic of mine. (laughs) Thank you, Anne-Marie. Well, that wraps up this episode. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Share the link with your friends and colleagues. And you can always reach out to us at the email address in the show notes. Goodbye for now, and we'll effing talk to you soon.